Hello, dear listener. Today's message includes some content which could benefit from a preface. The Christian scriptures were written during a time of significant social, political, and religious tension. And while the passage covered contains comments regarding the religious culture at the time, it is not an indictment of the Jewish faith, or any faith for that matter. Rather, through this passage, we glean insight into problems which can beset opulent institutions. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. So this is only the second time I've spoken here at Kindred. And this time Liz and Mike are like, what songs do you want to have prior to speaking? I like drew a blank. I like, couldn't answer your question. And I thought like the first thing that came to my mind was the one I think you're going to play after this. But I just like couldn't come up with any songs that related to the message today. Because I realized I don't think through the lyrics of songs. Do any of you like analyze lyrics of songs? You're hearing the song, you're thinking through the meaning and all that. I don't whatsoever. Like If I just have the lyrics out on a piece of paper, I will do that. As soon as you couple it with music, I just am singing along sometimes or I'm just listening along but I have no idea what the heck is actually going on in the song. I could sing words of songs and then I'm like I've never stopped to think of the actual meaning of it. One example, this came up this week. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. You know the song? Yeah, please don't make me sing it. But I always understood this song as this like triumphant, patriotic, born in the USA song that's like one of the top played Fourth of July songs. But then I like read the lyrics and it's not that. It's a critique of the Vietnam War and how veterans are treated. It was just the chorus itself, standing alone, paints this picture of this really positive view of the USA. You read then the lyrics and it's a, an indictment on the way the soldiers are treated and what their plight is after the war. It changed the whole meaning of that song to me. How many hundreds of times have I heard that thing? But it just had an assumed meaning to it. And I never, ever stopped to think about it till I finally read the lyrics. And I was like, holy cow, I can't ever hear this the same way again. Completely changed the meaning for me. This happens to the Bible all the time. This is what we're getting to today. Because this passage that comes up in Mark 12, if you've been around the church at all for any stretch of time, you have certainly heard this. If you've been around the church like some of us have for decades plus, you have heard this thousands of times. But I think if we stop and look at it again, a different meaning comes through, especially when we look at what's around it. And it completely flips what the assumed understanding of this passage is. So it comes at Mark 12, starting in verse 41. It's famously known as the widow's offering. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. If you had to sum up the main point of this passage in one sentence, how would you do it? Just for fun, I asked ChatGPT to give me the main point of this. This is this is what the bot spat out. The main point of Mark 12, 41 through 44 is to teach a lesson about the value of generosity and sacrificial giving. This passage emphasizes the idea that it is not the amount that is given that matters, but the heart behind it. The widow's gift was a demonstration of her trust in God and her willingness to give sacrificially. This passage also critiques the religious leaders of the time who made a show of their wealth and religious piety, but neglected the needs of the poor and the marginalized. It challenges the reader to examine their own motives for giving 
thing and to prioritize generosity and concern for others over personal gain and prestige. Does this sound about right with how you've heard this passage preached? I was like, thanks, but I'm actually really nice to the bot. I tell it thank you and stuff so that when the machines rise against us, I'll be one of the humans that it's like, I guess it was all right. But you see, I mean, what the AI is drawing from is the sum total of the internet. Like this is what is out there in the interpretation of this passage. And so it captures how this is commonly taught. It's all about the individual and all about the motives. And so the widow, good for her, sacrificial giving. It's the heart behind it. Look at what she's doing. None of that is in the text. I mean, certainly she is giving sacrificially, but why do we read what the widow is doing as a good thing? If you stop to think about it, someone who has two coins, which the text says is literally all she has to live on, she's putting into this treasury. So presumably she can't eat because that's all she has. And it's going into this large temple system that is very opulent, beautiful stones on the buildings. It is a system that is benefiting those that are wealthy. And here she is sacrificially giving to that. We read so much into this passage. Jesus says nothing good about it. He doesn't have words of approval here. He just points out, matter-of-factly, that she is giving proportionately more than the wealthy folk. I want to zoom out a bit, and I want you to see something here. Because this, and this is so common in how we treat the Bible, as we extract a passage, it gets recycled over and over and over again in, in teachings, and so we just don't think about it. We don't think about what it's actually saying, because we have either listened to other voices consistently, or we've just been trained to read it in some such a way that we really miss the point. So I want to zoom out a bit because when you see what's around it, it drastically changes the meaning. Back to the passage right before this. Mark 12, 38 through 40. This is leading right into it. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. And we're talking devour houses, not like a Hansel and Gretel situation where it's like they're on the corner of the gingerbread house. They are exploiting the most vulnerable. They are taking their estates. They are taking the wealth that they have. Meanwhile, showy prayers, seats of honor, long flowing robes, meaning expensive clothing. They are ones that are profiting from the system at the expense of the widows. Then Jesus goes, hey, disciples, look over here. There's a widow putting in all she has to live on. And then look at the passage that comes right after. This is Mark chapter 13. Verses and chapters are constructs from a much later time. Original text did not have those. Mark chapter 13, right after this, that Jesus is pointing out this widow, the text reads, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. This whole system is coming down, he's saying. So put it all together. It goes like this. Beware of those corrupt leaders. They're exploiting widows. They're bankrupting them by this system that they are leading. Look over here. It's happening right now. She is giving everything she has to live on to support all of this. Oh, by the way, it's all coming down. Do you see this? Why do we read what the widow's doing as a good thing? That it's good that she's giving all her money. We don't identify with her. We are not in her shoes. We're on the side of the wealthy. Where it's like, yeah, look at that. Hey, everyone, give sacrificially. It becomes a very easy message. My hypothesis is that people from underprivileged communities or parts of the world where they don't have uh, the wealth that we have, if they were just to read this without any other influence, you know, Western influence on it, I would wager that they would go, this is is not good what she's doing. But we've heard it so many times that what she's doing is a great, look at all the sacrifice. And on a level that's true because she is giving a gift on her individual level. She is certainly being generous and sacrificial. I'm not saying that. Like what she personally is doing is not a bad thing. The system is just rigged against her. And Jesus is pointing that out. 
I think if you were to talk to her individually, be like, your faith is evident. You have great trust in God. You don't have to do this anymore. Like the sheer irony that the temple system is supposed to be providing for the poor, and here you have the poor providing. That's a bad thing. And Jesus's point is, this whole system is going to face judgment. And that happened approximately 40 years later, AD 70, the Romans leveled the temple. I've been to Jerusalem. The stones are still there. Some of the stones that were toppled almost 2,000 years ago are still there. They're they're massive. They were right. (laughs) Look at these big buildings, magnificent stones. Yep, they're still there because no one could move them after the place was demolished. Judgment was levied. And it was a system that had been doing the opposite of what it was intended to do. It was supposed to be providing for the poor, caring for the poor, and it was doing the exact opposite. So after the 2012 election, Mitt Romney had like a really notable gaffe in describing what he experienced on the campaign trail, what he saw in the American people. He's at an event where he was speaking to a bunch of his donors, and it was very wealthy people. And he goes, you know, out on the campaign trail, I've seen single moms who are working two jobs so that their kids can have the same things as other kids and dads who don't know what a weekend is because they're working so much to support the house. He's like, we're a patriotic people. The heart of America is good. That's the exact same thing that's happening here when this passage is taught. It's like, look at that widow giving all she has. That's a bad thing, right? That people would have to work multiple jobs just to be able to survive. It's not patriotism so much as it's a system that is not doing what it ought to do. For those of us that have seen this passage that the widow is offering as just an example of a good thing, we are just out of touch with the plight of the poor. The Bible is constantly redirecting us. We are the audience here. I'm I'm not speaking to y'all, me too, because we just don't identify with those that are being taken advantage of by a system. We're the ones that take advantage of the system. There's a couple points I want to make out of this. The first is that you can be a faithful participant in a corrupt system. And that's the widow here. She is honoring God, absolutely. I'm not saying what she is doing is a bad thing, personally, because she is putting her trust in God. She is offering a gift. This is not like there's no dagger to her back. It's not a tax, per se. She is going and offering. And so, like I said, I think Jesus would look at her and go, well done, good and faithful servant. You are being sacrificial, but you don't have to do this. That's not what I'm asking of you. He would then turn to the wealthy and go, you need to be supporting her as I have asked you. So that's the first point. I don't know how many of you have experienced this where you have given sacrificially to organizations that then have not handled that money well. And that feeling of like, wow, I I really stretched myself to give here, but I feel like it was squandered. I think Jesus to you would say, you did something good. It was noble. It's okay. This is not your fault. He then would indict the system. And so that's the second point is that the corrupt systems are going to face judgment. I think currently, as we see the extravagance of the modern American Western church, the same thing's going to happen. Whether that's as benign as removing tax exempt status, whether it's something more drastic, the extravagance bubbling over to a point where people are going, uh, this is wrong, will lead to countermeasures, things that will actually take down the system. I don't think Jesus, in looking at the ways in which money is handled in the American church, is very happy. That might be putting it way too lightly. I know this is a can of worms. Is this like a, a triggering issue? Have you experienced things financially with the church or just the way it's been handled, the transparency behind budgets, things like that? What's your experience with the church and money? I always had this friction where I'm like, this is not how it's supposed to be. And a lot of the answers are like, well, but this is just the way it is. I think that's what was happening in the first century is Jesus is going into the temple and he is raising hell because he's upset. This is not how it's supposed to be. And the system and those profiting from the system are like, yeah, but this is the way it is. And they fought to protect it. I mean, it's no stretch of the imagination to say that the reason Jesus was killed was because he challenged the money and the power that came with the money. 
According to these leaders, he's blaspheming God. You know, bees are in their bonnet. They're upset at what he's doing, but they're like, I don't want to mess with this. Like, yeah, they're like conspiring. How can we get rid of him? But ah, we just don't want to mess with the people. He challenged their money. And that's where they came in and bit. They're like, okay, time to go. We don't care anymore. That's the situation we can find ourselves in. We amass it and we have power with it. And then we do not want to let it go. And when churches as organizations become very powerful because of money, like any corporation do things to protect it at the expense of the people of God. I feel like there's a better way forward. And I've been very encouraged at Kindred for how you guys have approached money. I'm not on staff for the record for anyone listening to this. I don't get paid by the church at all. But I've seen transparency in terms of here's where our finances are at. There's also an honesty in just saying, we're a nonprofit organization that needs money. Please support us. Not God is calling us to do all these things and he's calling you to sacrificially give. It's treated as a tax often. And it shouldn't be. It should be a free will offering to support the people in need. So for a church like this is like, yeah, it's a fledgling church. There are some people who make a living to put this on. And so saying, hey, we need your support to help put this on is totally kosher. That is fine. That is great. That is good. That's the way it should be. As soon as it becomes manipulative, that cycle perpetuates to where you have poor widows giving money and it's going towards things that are bananas. But then to think like out of pensions or whatever little retirement they have, there were widows that are writing checks to go towards things like that. And we're just like, oh, that's normal versus, hey, maybe that money should be used to make it so these widows are a lot more comfortable or don't have to give anything. And the Bible does present a picture that can offer a corrective to the exploitation, the corruption, the extravagance that we see in churches today. If we just let it speak. So this passage of the widow's offering, when we just see it, we see that Jesus is pointing out the corruption and saying, it shouldn't be. Maybe that there is a a new way forward. And so a church like Kindred that's honest with its money, that's refreshing to me. And when there's a a shortfall in the budget, that there can be an ask for generosity. And it seems like people responded. And that's the picture you see in the New Testament. Even Paul's, you know, famous passage, God loves a cheerful giver. He's not raising money for him and his church. He's raising money for another church that's going through a famine. He's like, hey, Corinthians, give because they're starving. He's not saying give because God has called you to give and support this organization. He's just saying, hey, you you guys have funds they don't. Please be generous to help meet their need. And that's Christian charity. That's Christian generosity. And for the poor widows, they're like, I want to contribute to that. Amen. They don't have to, but in desiring to, amen. And then the wealthy, those that have the means, there it's almost a mandate. Hey, this is your responsibility. And in so doing, then everyone is provided for. And that's the picture of Christian shalom when it comes to finances is that no one has too much and no one has too little. And that there's a support going on in the community to where those that are struggling are provided for and those that are greatly blessed are able to give of what they've been given. And there's a harmony there in terms of people feeling like they can be at the table because there's not the socioeconomic disparity that excludes certain people or makes them feel like they have to pony up to be able to be included. For a lot of, I think, leaders that are teaching that way, it's like they just don't fully realize it because that's how they've been taught. So I don't want to ascribe ill motives to everyone, but people are like trusting. They're faithful. They want to serve the Lord and pastors can take advantage of it with very little scrutiny. That becomes intoxicating. And then when it comes to light, people feel cheated. And then who's to blame in their eyes? God, the church, it sours people's faith, how much it discourages them, how many people are like, I will never go to a church again because I gave my money and then the pastor was squandering it, or I gave sacrificially and then I didn't get the return financially that I was promised, which is a common teaching in churches. There's a manipulation that comes there and they're lied to. Who do they look to as the source of the problem? God or the church of God. And they're like, I want nothing to do with it now. 
we've been part of these systems. And in some ways, we're trying to make it fit and then getting out of it. It's like, okay, actually, we can be honest. And that, to me, is a lot more freeing. And that's why I appreciate how Kindred has handled money and the ethic behind it. Keep it going because it enables even those that are paid by the people to be honest and to then be kept in check, too. I think there should just be more transparency. So think like public employees, school teachers, whatever, like their their salaries are listed in the paper. You could get online right now and find out what anyone's making who is employed by UNR, by the government in any way, shape or form. It's because they're taxpayer funded positions. And like, why don't churches do that? Like, here's where all the money's going. You guys are funding it. We should be able to have the books open. So if anyone's like, hey, where's this money being spent? We're like, here you go. The way I read the widow's motivation, again, there's nothing in the text about it, is that she has been told it is such a good thing to give to the temple, that this is what God wants. Because this is not the tithe. This is the free will author. It is a gift. It, it is very much voluntary. But I think she's looking, she's like, I want to support this. And this is literally all I have, these two coins. I love you, Lord. Here you go. So there's a deeper joy is that she is not defined by money. She is not fearful of how she's going to eat the next day. She has something in her that's like, here you go. And the joy is not necessarily expressed in the smile on the face and the exuberance of being able to, but just that deep sense of I am okay in the eyes of the Lord and I can give up all that I have for him. Second Corinthians 8 and 9, which is Paul's plea to the Corinthian church to give towards the church in Jerusalem that's going through the famine. He says, whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly. And so then that's used often to say, yeah, if you're not sowing, meaning giving, then that's why you're not reaping. And it's all from God. So it's not necessarily, you know, coming through the channel of the church. But if you're giving to the church, say, you know, you're being a good Christian and giving your 10%, you can expect that in other areas of life, God is going to heap the blessings on you, including financially. And, and there's just a smattering of verses that's like you pull it out of context. And then it's like, if you give, then God's going to give you all the more back and it becomes material when it's not. And then it becomes give to us. And then God is going to provide on the other side. So in a sense, it's supported because it's misreading the Bible, but in the truest sense, it is not supported. Yeah, that's so Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. What is their sin? Lying to the Holy Spirit. The hypocrisy of presenting themselves as we've given all our money when they haven't. And Peter's point is like, you didn't have to give any of it. You could have been like, we just cashed in. We're retiring. He's like, you could have done that or you could have given it all. But don't pretend that you gave it all when you didn't. And I still don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit striking him dead. The point in that passage, and I think Jesus' point is like, we don't need your money for any of this. Like the Holy Spirit is not stopped by the lack of money and the Holy Spirit is not enhanced by your money. So just be honest with it. But there are people that do great work in the church communities. In the New Testament, Paul's like, yeah, give, like give to support them. And Paul's example is like, I've just refused all support. So none of you can accuse me of being in it for the money. Know that I'm doing this, not for for the cash, not for the power, but because I have seen the resurrected Jesus. He has flipped the entire script of my worldview. And now I'm going out to death to spread that news. And I love that. So maybe to land this plane is thank you, Kindred, for being transparent and good with money. And for those of us with means, like support the ministry because this is a good ministry. Support those that are helping make the ministry happen, not because God is telling you to do it, but because it is a good thing. And God sees the faithfulness. Like, again, I don't want to take him out of this as like it has nothing to do with God. It's just the faithfulness is expressed in this way, but it is not an obligation. And it is not something that uh, should be creating more disparity or uh, more problems as a result. But they're actually in the way that 
church handles money, it can be a breath of fresh air to a world that has gone haywire in worship of money. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.